Let's turn in our Bibles once again to Luke's Gospel as we continue our series through Luke, the eighth chapter, beginning at verse 22. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess before you that it is so easy for us to become centered upon our circumstances and upon ourselves. And we ask that in this service of worship that you will enable us, your people, to be lifted out of that and to recognize that we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ that all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are ours, and that whatever our circumstances, these circumstances are no surprise to you and are ordained for your glory and for our good. Grant that we may love you more, that we may hate sin more, that we may depend upon Christ more readily and faithfully, but Father, always to recognize that we are completely and utterly dependent upon you for all things. That you may glorify yourself and do that which is for the good of your people is always our prayer, and our prayer as we come to the text this morning, and we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that we may be exalted in due time. Use this word for these sovereign and wonderful purposes and purposes that we might not even know or imagine in our hearts and lives but also that those who are here who are strangers to grace and who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior might be called out of darkness into light. For this is your work. It is not something that we can do. We indeed can worship and we are called to. We may sing your praises and what a blessing it is. Some of us are called to preach and expound your word and all of us to bear witness. But Lord, the conversion of a heart the regeneration of a soul, this can only come from your hand. And so we depend upon you for it, that dead bones may stir, that sinews may come upon those bones, that the Spirit may bring life where there now is death. And in the hearts and lives of your people, as we struggle with temptation and sin and circumstances that overwhelm, may we recognize who this is who calmed the storm. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand as we begin in Luke chapter 8 with verse 22. This is the Word of God. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
Now we come to a most fascinating portion of Luke's gospel in which the next events recorded are intended to demonstrate through miracles that Jesus performed his sovereign authority over all things. In the text that we have read this morning, we will see that he is authoritative over the created order, leading to the question, who is this that even the winds and waves obey? Then we will turn to authority over the demonic realm in the next section, and after that we will see Jesus' authority over sickness and even over death, and soon after that his authority to provide by the feeding of the 5,000. The point, of course, here in this collection of miracles that Jesus performed is that Luke wants us to see that Jesus is indeed just that, that he is Lord. He wants us to see that he is completely in control and sovereign and authoritative. And as you read these texts and we hear them preached over these next few weeks, It's really essential that we understand that he's not just authoritative and sovereign out there. Yes, he is sovereign and authoritative out there over all things. But the point is that this one who is sovereign and authoritative over wind and waves is also sovereign and authoritative in my life and in yours and over all of our circumstances. And so will you see this morning his lordship, his authority over you and over me and over all things. So we begin, first of all, with this this fact, that Jesus brings his disciples into a storm. Jesus brings his disciples into a storm. We read in verse 22, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. Now I wonder if they had known about where Jesus was leading them, whether they would have gotten into the boat. Leaving the crowd, you see, Jesus took his disciples in a boat to cross to the other side of the lake. Now, we don't know all of the reasons that Jesus wanted to go to the other side of the lake. He's been pressed by crowds. Perhaps he wanted some rest. We do know that he has an appointment, an ordained encounter on the other side of the lake with a demoniac. And we also know this that Jesus came into this world as the Father's representative, and every step in his ministry is ordained of his Father, ordered of the Lord, and he is leading his disciples into a new opportunity to learn who he is. Jesus leads them into a storm so that they may see who he is. And that has not changed He still leads in ways that are perplexing to us, ways that are hard, difficult, and strange, ways that you and I would not choose, but ways that the Lord ordains in order that we may learn who he is and rely upon him in faith. We do not learn about our Lord by avoiding difficulties. He leads us into difficulties for the very purpose of showing us himself. Does the Lord lead us into trouble? Certainly. Does the Lord bring trouble? Certainly. And I think it deserves underscoring because some of us have the idea that God brings good out of trouble, but that he doesn't bring us into trouble. He doesn't lead you into temptation. But yes, he is in sovereign control of all things. He does bring trouble. He does lead into trouble. 
He does lead into those things that are hard and difficult and strange for us in order that we might learn who he is. How many times have we said it, and we should underscore, the Lord is not so much concerned for our comfort, he is concerned with our holiness, and that he will bring into our lives that which is needed for his own glory and for the good of his people. So surely, the Lord, you say, well, the devil brings these things into my life. Well, who, whose devil is the devil? As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. The Lord is in sovereign control. His works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. There's nothing that will happen in the disciples' lives as we see by chance, and there is nothing that comes into your life by chance. So yes, he does this, but the point is when he takes us into those strange circumstances, we as God's people are never alone. He is always there with us. Now, the Lake of Galilee is infamous for its sudden storms. It is 700 feet below sea level. It is surrounded by hills, and sometimes the cool air will come down the mountainside and down the hills, colliding with the warm air, and it produces a great storm. There was an open fishing boat that was excavated by archaeologists in Gnosser in 1986. It actually was big news. After several years of drought, the water level had dropped down to the point that when two young men were walking, they found the outline of a boat in the mud. It was reported to the officials, and archaeologists very carefully excavated it, and it was dated between 100 B.C. and 70 A.D. The excavation received worldwide attention because our only sources of information for such boats were the New Testament, of course, and Josephus and some Roman mosaics. This was the first time that such a boat that would have been used by Jesus and his disciples probably was discovered, found, and understood from what actually could be seen. It was big enough to carry 15 people and most interestingly, the, 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 the sides were very, very low to make it easy to cast for fishing, but it would be defenseless against storms like this one and high waves. I'm always delighted when I come across something like this, but a number of years ago when I was reading, this was at night when I couldn't sleep, it was my get-up-in-the-middle-of-the-night book to read, And I was reading Broadus' uh, biography by A.T. Robertson. And uh, it was very interesting to find that in 1871, there's a reference in his diary when he was traveling. He had a year abroad, and he was traveling in Palestine. And he was there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he was caught in a storm. And this is what Broadus says in his diary. Delighted to see a storm gathering on the Sea of Galilee. Presently, I look across. All the southern part of the lake is now clouded with rain, already heavy at the south end. But opposite, I see the summits on the mountain range standing out very clear, indeed bright in the evening sun, which shines over the clouds upon them. And, oh, look, look at Hermon. He means Mount Hermon that he can see. Oh, look, oh, look, friend. He had a friend, Dr. Randolph, with him. Oh, look, friend, at Hermon. All words fail to tell how brilliant, how gloriously radiant. I gazed and gazed in a very agony of delight. And so I was thinking, so sometimes with the dying, 
when all around is growing dark, they turn their eyes in a new direction and suddenly bright transporting rises the vision of another world, splendid with unearthly glories, blessed, rapturous, overwhelming. I could not see the wonderful mountain now for the tears that came, but the rain increased and the tent invited, new and loud bursts of thunder, and as I look forth, the water of the lake is leaping high from something more than raindrops. On the tombstones here just before me, large hailstones are rebounding. The tent, too hastily erected, shakes and leaks, and I arrange our bed so as to protect them, then sit down near the tent door to gaze. White caps now on the lake and surf beating on the shore, thunder very loud and abrupt, Lightnings forked and many-colored, the northern part of the lake now obscured, the vision of Hermon gone. As the hail subsides, there passes between me and the shore a great flock of black goats and some sheep hurrying from the fields to shelter, but too late the shepherd calls. The shepherd dogs bark loudly, urging the stragglers along. The storm rolls off north and northeast. Dr. R. has stayed out through it all. We rejoice much at having seen it, having got here just in time. Isn't that wonderful? An actual sight of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. So you see it in your mind's eye, don't you? Verse 23, and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and we're in danger. The words, the two words together means violent storm, hurricane, if you will. And the verb filling is an imperfect, meaning that it was happening all along, continuing to happen. They were being swamped, in other words. They were about to sink. They were about to drown. Rain, possibly hail, wind, a strong, strong, strong storm, and Jesus was asleep. You ever think, God, are you sleeping? You know he's not. He's the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, but you feel as if he sleeps. Are you not there for me, Lord, when I cry out to you? Well, we see next that, secondly, that the disciples panic. Verses 23 and 24, uh, we read, And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. So imagine their alarm. They could not bail out this amount of water. They could not get back to shore. There's nothing that they can do. They were in the very position in which they needed to be to come to know the authority of Jesus Christ, which is what he wants to show them. That awkward position of knowing that they were powerless, that they could do nothing. Left to themselves, they would drown. Perhaps you've seen, I always think of two things when I, when I read this text. One is Rembrandt's The Storm on the Lake of Galilee. And if you've ever seen the painting or a picture of it, the, the tackle and the rigging are torn, the sail is tattered, the sky is ominously dark, the waves master the tiny little craft that is near capsizing, 
And a number of the disciples are seen in the painting gathering with terror on their faces around a Jesus who is calm and serene in the stern of the boat. And it was such a storm that even made seasoned sailors, as some of these disciples were, fearful. The other thing I think of always when I come to this text, I sometimes hear in my mind when I read the passage that stirring portion of Debussy's La Mer, in which you hear the crashing of the waves that are driven by the wind. And I think of that when I read this passage. Children, by the way, that are brought up on such music have vast vistas of imagination open for them. And so the disciples panic. Ever panicked? Ever been in a situation in which the circumstances seem to be so overwhelming that you panic and you cry out? And so what did they do? Well, they awakened Jesus. Master, master, we are perishing. Mark's gospel, as I recall, says something like, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? Undoubtedly, many things were being shouted at Jesus from various disciples at once. Don't you care? The next time such a question comes into your mind, think of the cross, where Jesus Christ gave his life to redeem you, to shed his blood, and to purchase you from your sins. The next time such a question, question comes, think of him as your substitute hanging on a tree. No matter what comes into your life, what difficulties there may be, never doubt his love for you. Because his love has been proven. God demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Come what may, never doubt his love. But also, never doubt his sovereign control over all things. And so we see thirdly, Jesus is in sovereign control. Verse 24, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Jesus rebuked the boisterous surge, and it became calm. Just like that. Just like that. When Jesus commands, and that's the word Luke uses, it's unique to Luke in this connection. When Jesus commands, the wind and the waves have no choice but to obey. The disciples have been chased by a great and howling dog of a storm. And Jesus says, shut up, reaches out, muzzles its snout, and it goes whimpering away. And verse 25 says, and he said to them, where is your faith? Now, the point of Jesus' loving rebuke strikes my heart. Does it strike yours? I think if we're honest, it strikes us all. Where is your faith? Why are you not applying your faith that you have in me to this circumstance? That's what he means. Given who I am, why are you not relying on me more? 
Am I not in control even of things that hurt? Am I not in control even of things that you don't understand? Am I not in control even of things that are disastrous in human terms? As Matthew Henry so well put it, if Christ sends his disciples, he goes with them. And those may safely and boldly venture anywhere that have Christ accompanying them. Now I will tell you, how many times in my own Christian experience have I been ashamed of my fears after the fact? God in his sovereignty has taken me into something deep and dangerous, hard, difficult, painful, and he's with me through it all. Often I'm made to know and to sense that and to recognize it and to apply the scriptures, but sometimes I simply fear. I'm just afraid. And after the fact, I'm sometimes ashamed. The Lord has never failed me, never, and yet I fear. Letting sight, listen, letting sight and sense determine our lives makes us poor theologians indeed. Now, the world wants to tell you all there is out there is what you see and what you hear and what you can test with your senses. That's nonsense. And if that's how we live as Christians, then indeed we are poor theologians. But letting sight and sense determine our lives is contrary to the walk of faith. So fourthly, understandably, having calmed the wind the waves, they cry out with the climactic question in verse 25, who is this? Look at verse 25, and he said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Well, the calmed winds and waves point to Jesus, and this tells us who he is. But let me answer that question biblically by thinking of it in three ways. First, any Jew would have known that there is only one who can still the wind and the waves, and that is the creator and Lord of the universe. They have heard the scriptures from their infancy. They've heard it undoubtedly in their homes from memory. They've memorized the Bible. They've heard it in the synagogues. Any Jew would have certain verses that would have come to mind in a setting like this. For example, Psalm 65, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 77, verse 16, When the waves saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid, indeed the deep trembled. Psalm 89, 9, You rule the raging sea when its waves rise, you still them. And the passage that we read together this morning The 107th Psalm, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. 
For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. The Yahweh, Jehovah, of Psalm 107 is this Jesus who calmed the storm. This is the personal, the living, the true God who is involved in our lives according to his own will. You can't help but think of the the Lewis, the C.S. Lewis comment about Aslan sometimes when he says he's not safe, but he's good. He takes us into the storm. He calms the storm. Who is this? Psalm 107 tells us it's Jehovah, God made flesh. Now from a different angle. This is the Lord who is in control of the cosmos. He is sovereign over all things. He rules over all things, over all men, and even over devils, as we will see. He rules over life. He rules over death. He subdues all that opposes his sovereign command with his word of command. It's a miracle. Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world and performed miracles, and miracle shows what this world someday will be. The future breaks into time. Something of the new heavens and the new earth is now showcased in the stilling of this storm. You might turn to Romans 8. Remember how Paul the Apostle puts it as he thinks of the fallenness of this world. Why don't you turn there? In Romans 8, in the context of speaking of the sufferings that we Christians endure in the fallenness of this world, he speaks of this natural world in which we live as being affected by the fall of Adam. And he says in Romans 8:18. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, he's talking about the created order, the winds, the waves, the sea, the land, the animals. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved." Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, I say, miracle shows what this world will be. The future has broken into time in this miracle. Something of the new heavens and the new earth is now being showcased in the stilling of the wind 
the stilling of the storm. And the promise of Romans 8 is we Christians are going to suffer in this world that is broken and everything is out of joint because of the fall. But Christ is going to come again and he is going to restore this world. Indeed, he will bring about the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And the disciples have a taste of that here. And you, because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of promise, already participate in that new heaven and new earth. It is that certain. That's who he is. He is the Lord, the ruler of the cosmos. But then from another angle, have you ever stopped to think that every miracle of Jesus is an overcoming of death? Think about it. Every miracle that Jesus performed was an overcoming of death. Since every miracle addresses the results of the fall of Adam, which brought death into the world, every miracle of Jesus tells us that he is life. And since every miracle is also a foreshadowing of the cosmos in its restoration at the end when Jesus comes again, and since the new creation is inaugurated in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, every miracle of Jesus is an exercise of the resurrection power of Jesus before his resurrection has taken place. Whoa! Did that just go over your head, or does it mean something to your heart? Did you hear that? Every miracle of Jesus is an exercise of his resurrection power even before his resurrection has taken place. Every miracle shows that Jesus is life and that he has come into the world to destroy the work of the devil and to destroy death by his own death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. Let me tell you this morning, you do not worship a Savior that can't save. You do not worship a Savior who cannot redeem because his bones are bleaching under a Palestinian sky. You worship a Savior who rose bodily from the tomb, who lives, who rules, who reigns, Yes, in the circumstance that is above you, beyond you, mysterious to you, troubling to you, even crushing to you, his life is present in the midst of it all. The disciples were awed. Are you? Have we become so, so accustomed to these things? So, so, so often have we read them that we're no longer awed by them? They were. We should be. They asked, who is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? The answer is, this is the Son of God. God, the second person of the Trinity that became man to die on a cross for his people and to rise from the dead and in rising inaugurate the new creation. This is the Lord of heaven and earth who rules and reigns over all men, all things, over the devil himself, over heaven, over hell, over life, over death, and he is the Lord to be trusted by me and by you. He is the Lord to be trusted. 
Having calmed the storm, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 25, where is your faith? Shouldn't they have learned by this time, having been with them, having learned the secret of the kingdom, Jesus himself, to rely upon him? Well, we're just like the disciples, aren't we? And we're called to put our faith in him, and he can be relied upon because of who he is. He can be trusted. You are not at all allegorizing if you apply this text to the storms of life. Once having recognized this is an historical event, a real miracle performed by Jesus in space and time, then it is right for you to say that same Jesus that still that storm can also rule and reign, indeed does rule and reign in the storms that I face in my life. Storm-tossed people of God, the real event has application to all that we endure as Christians in this fallen world. Now, very early in Christian art, the ship became a symbol of the Christian church, and rightly so. Storm-tossed, persecuted, distressed, yet still in the boat, safe in the power of the one who calms the storm. And believer, so are you. Safe in the boat, in the power of the one who calms the storm. You may cry out as did the disciples, Master, Master, we are perishing. He may not calm the storm when you want him to, in the place you want him to, at the time that you want him to, in the way that you would like, but the same Lord of heaven and earth that became man and calmed the wind and the waves rules in your heart and life as well. And this text is calling us, it is calling you, Christian, to greater faith, to trust him more, to a deeper realization that he is in control. Now, they are beginning in Luke's gospel to understand something of who he is. Do you know who he is? This should bring greater awe in your life than the storm could ever bring. You have a completed Bible. You know who he is. And so people of God don't focus on the storm, whether examining this text or applying it. There's something far more important in life than my problems, far more in important than me, far more important than my circumstances. And when I see this, my problems can be put in perspective. What is more important? The glory of God. What is more important? Really, it's not a what. It's Jesus. Let your problems, let your troubles... And the storm, turn your attention to the question, who is this? Be appropriately awed. This is the incarnate God, ruler of all nature, your Savior. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.